But Saul, still breathing, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing anyone. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man at Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was, a disciple. he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I want to do a quick contrast. On this text, if you have your Bibles open, open them to Acts 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 22. Let's look at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if it be found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's verse 1. Now let's look at verse 20. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of Man. What happened? Like, how does that happen? You couldn't have a more complete 180 in the story of the Bible. How does somebody go from literally seeking letters to give him permission to imprison the little Jesuses that are still out there to proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God? The very thing that 19 verses earlier he would say was an utter fallacy. How does that transformation happen? What I want to tell you this morning is it only happens by the gracious intervention of Jesus. Saul cannot do this transformation on his own. In this story, Jesus is the one who stops. Jesus is the one who blinds. And Jesus is the one who restores the sight of Saul. 
Really take that in for a second. Jesus stops and disrupts Saul. Then he blinds him and then restores his sight. And what I want us to get from this, what I want us to get is that contrary to what culture will tell you everywhere in our age of exalting mental health, and don't get me wrong, it is a really important time for us to be thinking about mental health. But you will not change yourselves from within on your own. No journey of self-discovery, no psychological handbooks, None of that is going to pull you out of your own confusion. The only thing that will pull you out is Jesus Christ, the truth and the light. So we can be introspective. We can dig deeper. We can uncover. But it is only Jesus that will redeem us. Probably if you've been a Christian for a while, which many of you have, you will realize that this is a story that we call the Damascus Road. And a lot of people will say, hey, I had a Damascus Road moment, right? And then I came to faith. What they mean is they had a moment of divine intervention where they heard from Jesus something supernatural happened. And then some people go, well, wait a second. I haven't had my Damascus Road moment. What's going on? Is what's God waiting for? If he exists, why hasn't he appeared to me like he appeared to Saul? Well, what I'm here to tell you today is that this story is a Damascus Road moment for you. There's no way you could read this if you believe that this is true. There's no way you could read this and say, how you would have to ask yourself, how is this biography possible if Jesus isn't real? How does that kind of transformation happen if Jesus isn't real? Think about it. What does Saul have to lose? Like, what's the motivation for this transformation if it was just his own internal mission of self-discovery? He has nothing to lose. What would cause him to change sides? Unless he was to simply realize irrefutably, he couldn't shake it, that Jesus is real. He's real. Why else would he change teams from power to weakness, from persecutor to persecuted, unless he was convinced beyond anything you could shake out of him, that it was the truth. I mean, let's just be honest for a second. Like, do we admire that conviction? Do we stand there and face God and go, no matter what you do to me, I can't admit. I could never say you're not real. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's completely sure in my body that Jesus is real. So this is, for anyone hearing this, this is a Damascus Road moment. This is Jesus appearing in the most real way he can to us reading this story and saying, I am real. But what we'll see is that this story is not so much like a sudden transformation of Paul as it is a complete surrender. Okay, The Damascus Road conversion is less about being a sudden transformation. Oh, Jesus appeared to me and like changed me. 
how some people think about baptism. I'm going to come out of the water and I'm going to be good. Right? I'm going to go from bad before to good after. I cannot wait for that. Jesus, get in me. Get your spirit in me. Let's change this. Right? Change me. But what if we viewed this story as a complete surrender? Saul's name is later changed to Paul, and Paul talks about his thorn in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He talks about it's like a, it's either a flush problem, something going on with his body that gives him aches and pains or reminds him of his vulnerability, or it's some kind of sin temptation that sticks with him. He talks about being a, a messenger from Satan to keep me from being conceited, which means to be full of myself. Paul is encountering and having to deal with heartache and hurt even after he completely surrenders way later in his life. And he says, it's to keep me from feeling too full of myself. I have to realize that I always need Jesus. So sanctification, I've been learning, guys, I have been more than you know. I have been experiencing this text this week. And sanctification comes in layers. You think you're through it. You think you're through whatever the thing was that breaks you down into tears. You think you're through the heartache. You think you're through it. I've overcome that. I got through that. I'm out on the other side. And then you get hit with another wave. My sin is not gone. I'm still prideful. I still struggle with that thing, but I just manifest it in a new way now. I'm now coping in a new way, but I still want more for me. And it should be a, just a tremendous grace for us this morning to realize it was for Paul too. We always need Jesus. And he says, you know what? That keeps you from becoming arrogant. That keeps you from becoming superior. So what we'll see in this story is that Jesus takes Saul, Saul on a story from spiritual blindness into real blindness. He makes the spiritual a reality for him. He puts him into a dark place of being out of control. But it's brought on by none other than his glorious light. His overpowering grace. It did not matter how many people Saul had to kill, Jesus would not stop pursuing him. How beautiful is that? How many people did Saul put in prison, watch as they were stoned to death like Stephen? And Jesus is pursuing him and he blinds him and this blindness is a love story. Paul is, Saul is blinded by grace, blinded by it. So some of you have walked in today, I know, because I have, and you think that you don't deserve God's grace. Well, think again. Think again. This text completely wrecked me. And Saul is completely wrecked by it. He's completely wrecked by this encounter. And if you admit to yourself what you can't forgive in yourself, and you realize that Jesus has forgiven it, it will wreck you too. It will wreck you. You've been forgiven for the unforgivable things in your life, church. You have been forgiven. 
Jesus has forgiven you for things that you haven't forgiven yourself for. So what we'll see is with Saul, the taller the tree, the farther it falls. We know that statement, right? The taller the tree, the farther it falls. Think about the story of the house on the sand. Saul's built a skyscraper on the sand. And the more of a stronghold you build up against Jesus, the more wreckage there is when his love takes hold of your life. So why is there such a far fall for Saul? Well, Saul, for starters, yes, we know he's, he is implicit in these murders, complicit in these murders. But for starters, Saul is a hypocrite. Rewind. I'm sure we don't all remember this. Rewind a little while. And if you remember at the story of um, Peter and John being thrown into sort of prison by the Sanhedrin, there's an argument that happens between the Sanhedrin and a teacher named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, in that story in Acts 5, 34 through 39, is actually a voice of moderation. So he's saying, hey, guys, let's, let's calm it down a little bit. Let's back off of the anger of the fury. And let's just, let's just take this one step at a time. But Saul is nothing like Gamaliel at the start of this story, is he? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Saul goes to the high priests and asks them for letters of extradition. He basically says, these ones got away. Give me a letter that gives me permission to just go capture them all back. Those, the ones that got away, I need to be able to go get them because they deserve to be in prison. Paul is fanat Saul is fanatical. But Saul thinks he's right. At the beginning of the story, he's completely sure that he's right. Remember in Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. And Saul kept their coats clean from blood, the people who were stoning him. He upheld the rules of religion. Luke introduces us in Acts 8.1 as a man who approved of their killing of them. Saul watches it happen. He watches Stephen die in the name of righteousness. He says, this is the right thing to do. But it's at this point that I believe, and many commentators have read this, believe that Saul's ego begins to crumble inside. So it appears at the beginning that Saul is totally self-assured. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. But it just seems like this guy is just completely sure of himself. That's how it reads, right? But put, let's put, cast it another way for a second. If Saul's ego is beginning to crumble and he's gripping tighter and tighter, what's he going to do? He's going to grow more and more fanatical. Psychologist Carl Jung noted that often fanaticism is a cover-up for doubt. More fiery, more fanatical, more radical, because inside he's rocked with doubt. Because he sees Stephen, and when Stephen is stoned to death, Stephen, whose face looked like an angel, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says the very same thing Jesus says. He says, Lord, do not hold their sin 
against them. Who dies like that? Who, who dies like that? Saul can't get it out of his mind. So when Saul's on the road, he's already blind. He's blind with rage. He's a broken man and he doesn't even know it yet. So what Jesus is really doing is he's kicking the final leg out from under the stool for Saul, right? You don't realize this, but I'm blinding you for your own grace, Saul. The only way we're going to get better is if we first get worse a little bit. Because you need to see what's so wrong in your life. Saul desperately needs to be disrupted to be stopped for the sake of the Christians in Damascus and for his own sake. So Jesus disrupts his path. But think about it. How can we do that on our own? Or maybe even with a close friend, without Jesus. Here's how we do it in our culture. We go, we go oh yeah, I'm in a journey of self-discovery. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do self-care. But then what do we do? We discover, oh, I'm a three, or I'm an ENTJ, or I'm a strengths finder, whatever. And we go, okay, now I know about myself. Now I've done a, a journey of self-discovery. I know I have these triggers. I know I have these traumas. So I know what I need to fix it. This is what I need. Is that Jesus solving the problem? Is that Jesus coming in and giving you his grace and saying, I redeem you? Or is that you solving your own problem? Right? Now, I'm not saying here that we can't do journeys of self-discovery with Jesus as our authority. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do introspection. I'm not saying we shouldn't meditate on the word. And, but, but in that, you're asking Jesus. You're saying, Jesus, I've learned this about myself. Maybe I have learned that I'm an Enneagram 3, Jesus. And that helps me understand. But rather than take the prescription of culture into how to handle that, I'm going to ask you, what do you want from me? What do you need to do in me? What work do you need to do in me? So that the answer is not just self-serving. There's plenty of times in the Bible that we see this all throughout the Old Testament where, like it or not, we see that God gives limited judgment as a grace. He does it to Israel all over the place. He comes in and he says, you cannot keep doing this. So we're going to have some kind of action here, some, whether it's a discipline, where it's some invasion, whether it's something happens with famine, where it's, it's something, and it's going to remind you, like what Paul says, to not become conceited, that you can do it on your own without me. And that limited judgment is a grace. So when Jesus is calling... When we sing that song, Jesus is calling, right? We're thinking, come to the altar, it's gonna feel good. And those are all true things. And grace will be those things. But what we don't realize is it's not always sweet feelings for him to get to us. Sometimes it's going to hurt and there's gonna be pain and he's uncovering ourselves. And what we're going to see when he does that is shame. He's showing us all of his love but we're seeing shame. So his love isn't what hurts. What hurts is our shame. 
What hurts is the fact that we are being corrected. What hurts is the fact that we don't even like what's being uncovered. That's why we covered it up in the first place. And it hurts. So Paul, Saul in this story is getting the deep cut. He's getting personal experience first of the divine word. Christ first speaks to Paul and he's Saul. I'm doing that all the day today. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting? Now, put yourself in the shoes just for a second of Saul. Saul is going down to the master where he's a rabbi, right? And he hears divine voice. We don't know if he's ever heard divine voice before. It's certainly not the Bible, right? This is a moment where he hears the voice of the divine, of Yahweh, who he knows that voice is God, right? And that voice says, not, you're so righteous, you're doing great, keep on going. Good work. There's a whole bunch over in Damascus. Yeah, just get them all, throw them in prison. That's what he thinks the voice of Yahweh would say. Because Yahweh is the one true God, and how could Jesus be God? But no, what does the divine voice say that wrecks him? Saul, you're wrong. Saul, you've got it wrong. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so we think, okay, well, again, John, Damascus Road moment. Maybe God's going to come to me. Actually, I pray that he would come to me and just like speak from the heavens. That would be so much easier. So we're hoping for these acts of God. There's a clause in contracts. If you ever read a contract, which I don't recommend it, they're not fun to read. But if you ever get down, there's a clause that will always say force majeure. And force majeure means acts of God, Right. And it's always this clause in the contract that like excuses everybody if something that's like an act of God happens, a flood or, you know, a meteor strikes the office or whatever, right? That's an act of God. So we think in ourselves, we think, okay, if God's going to intervene, it's going to have to be like an act of God, right? It's going to be something like a meteor. It's going to be something like blinding light coming down from heaven. But... I think that screws us all up. God is divinely intervening all the time in our lives. If you get personal with the word of God, he will mess you up and clean you up. Let me say that again. He will mess you up and clean you up. So don't leave right after he messes you up. Stay and he will clean you up. This is, this is all throughout the Bible. If you look at any of the long psalm, any of the Psalms, I'm going to read something later in this sermon. It's always going first down into the deeps with God. Praying out to him and then waiting in faith for him to lift you out. Because remember, Paul will later write in Romans that it doesn't even take, it doesn't even take a word from God, much less divine light. It only takes seeing nature to realize that God has intervened in the world and that he exists. Romans 1.20, I've read this plenty of times, you guys. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, they meaning the world. 
we're just to wake up in the morning puts us without excuse at admitting the nature of a God, a creator God. So then Saul's response in the text, right after he says that in verse five, is who are you, Lord? Really think about that question. Saul must know Yahweh. We all know Jesus, know Yahweh. We're all sure of who he is, right? And we go, okay, I, I know how he wants me to act right now. I know what it is. I know what I need to do right now. Or maybe sometimes we don't know. But a lot of times I feel like we can get really self-assured and we say, I know that this is the way it's done. I know that this is the way how we do it. But God intervenes and disrupts him just simply with the statement of who he is. It's like Moses at the burning bush here, where God says, I am that I am. Just like reckon with me because I am. And I'm so big and so powerful and so glorious. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. John Stott writes that Jesus so identified with his followers that he felt their pain and identified with their persecution and asked Saul why he was persecuting God in essence. So just put yourself again in, in Saul's shoes for a second. You're God's biggest fan. You have read all his books. You go to all his shows, right? And he meets you, and he says, why are you killing me? Wouldn't that give you an identity crisis? Like, wouldn't that make you feel like, what? Like, I'm your biggest fan. Like, I now feel like dirt. My whole life has been about you, worshiping you, thinking about you, following you, liking all your tweets, whatever. Like, I, I'm into you, and you're not into me. That would send Saul into a total spiral. And then, this is odd, right immediately after that, Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Rise and enter the city and you'll be... So, wait, Saul, you're totally wrong, but keep going. You're totally wrong, but keep going and let me tell you what to do. Now, just, I had to think this out for my life for a second. Saul is going, or Jesus is saying, yes, you feel broken. Yes, you're all messed up inside. Guess what I want you to do? Keep heading in the same direction you're heading in. But this time, listen to me. That's harder. That's harder than turning around. That's harder than bailing out. That's harder than like giving up. Way, way harder. And Jesus says, no, no, stay the course, but this time do it believing in me. And that, guys, is a window into the process of Christian transformation. That's what it's like. That's the sanctification pro process, as we call it. So it's not enough for Saul to even 
accept Jesus's forgiveness and forgive people from afar, he's going to have to go into Damascus and live out first his forgiveness. As he's looking at the people uh, four days ago, he wished that they would be imprisoned and dead. And he's going to have to realize, I can't believe what kind of person I am. He's going to have to face it. He's going to have to face his shame and his guilt. And he's going to have to go feel all the feelings. Jesus is wanting us to feel all the feelings. Like, just go and feel it out. To go through it. And think about what the hardest part might be for Saul as he's going into this city and he's being forgiven by Jesus. And he gets baptized and he sees even Ananias. And Ananias has forgiven him to really believe that, to really believe that. Saul must feel unforgivable. And he's been looked in the eyes by somebody who has forgiven him. And he said, I don't even think I can forgive myself. So what happens to when the spiritual blindness and the physical blindness connect? What happens when God takes in his divine grace and makes our spiritual reality a physical reality? He's there to teach us something. He's there to convince us of some of our deep personal issues with God. Because we need convincing. We're not done yet. We want to be like, I've repented. I've said the words. I know I've done it. And now can like we get on with it? Like this hurts, you know? Like you're a God of grace. I'm forgiven. Can we get on with this? Yes. Yes, you can. But full repentance does not always look like what we think it looks like. Full belief and faith sometimes entails a lot more than we think. But look at what the amazing thing about this is. On the back end of this is that Saul... Saul believes that it's for his good, and God says that it's for his good. Let's let's just dive in for a second. Guys, I'm taking you into stuff that maybe not all of you are identifying with today. Maybe you don't have this going on with you right now. So maybe this is like note time. Or maybe some of you are dealing with real, actual pain that you're having to go through. And you're saying, I need to figure this out. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like when toxic behavior, which is a spiritual blindness, can become the pain of a broken friendship or a divorce. That's spiritual blindness matching up with physical blindness. 
Physical blindness is I was out of control of my own self. Now I feel totally out of control of everything, right? Things have happened outside of my control that have put me totally out of control. When Saul is blind, he has to be led by other people. He has no control anymore. A guy who fancies all of his power as being something he can handle finds out he's misused it. And now he has to deal with the reality. That's part of his journey. It's when serial complaining at work suddenly becomes, I got fired. That might be spiritual blindness matching up with physical blindness. It's when idolatry or addiction becomes a prison of guilt and shame. It's getting low enough that you can say, I am completely in need of a savior. I cannot save myself from this. Do we see how that blinding is a grace? Like how that's a good thing. This is, God is not here to say, shame on you. I want you to be down, get down. But sometimes we are saying, I can't get up. I can't walk with you. I haven't forgiven myself. I'm not going to be in love with you, Jesus, when you try to take away my sin because I'm still in love with my sin. So this is why Jesus is the stumbling block that is also called the door. This is why Jesus is an inconvenience that is the key to freedom. This is why Jesus is a catastrophe that is the call, right? When, when the call of Jesus comes to people, it is an utter disruption on their life. <laughs> so you can't walk into church and go, Jesus, I want to be all in with you and expect your life to look the same when you walk out the door. That's not a, an expectation. That's not what we're about here, you know? We're, we're about like transformation. I walk in and I give you my life and I walk out and I'm going to start to see things suddenly not matching up anymore. Friendships that were fine are going to feel strained and forced. Workplace situations and me, the meaning I was after is suddenly going to feel unfulfilling. Relationships where I felt totally justified in doing what I was doing, I now see how wrong I was. And I've got to go ask for forgiveness. And it's that disruption that is the seed for repentance. God calls us and woos us, but we have to confess and return. See, Saul's fall would be much different if he wasn't a skyscraper on the sand. But he'd gone for so long. Guy Gray, who's a professor of mine, and I just had class with him on Friday, says that in churches, a lot of times we focus right now a lot on God's unfailing love. His unfailing love is unfailing. That's all good. He has unfailing love. But we don't realize, just like the text this morning at the call to worship, that there is a repentance that happens, a belief and a faith. In the Acts 2 sermon, Peter says, repent and believe. And so we walk through the blindness. I've talked about this quite a bit already. But I want to talk about this part of the blindness. That it can either lead to surrender or to bitterness. Okay, so when Paul becomes, when his spiritual blindness matches up with his physical blindness, 
He can either surrender or he can become bitter. He could go to Damascus and wait for Ananias, or he could turn and go back to the Sanhedrin and just be this bitter, blind, tyrannical Pharisee. Paul, Saul is actually at a crossroads here. Fortunately, we see him surrender. In Acts 22, Paul talks about this experience as Saul. And he recounts the conversion event. It actually happens two other places in Acts. And he says, I could not see because of the brightness of that light. I could not see anymore because of the brightness of the light. Think about, we, we were reading at the dinner table about the story of Cain um, in a children's Bible. And what happens to Cain, right? He offers an offering. It's not as good or whatever, or something's wrong with it. Something's wrong with him. And Abel's offering is taken. And Cain gets bitter. He says, God, why don't you love me? Like, why didn't you take my offering? And then God meets him where he's at and talks about the state of his heart. And he says to Cain, I need you to repent and change, right? That's, that's, the, that's the gist of that story. And what does Cain do? He rebels and he goes the opposite way that Saul went in the story. He raises up his hand over Abel. He kills him on the spot out of his jealous rage. And, he, and then God approaches him again and he says, you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, what do you think that, is that God just being super condemning? I think that's God revealing the reality of Cain's heart without repentance. Without repentance, Cain, now that you're a murderer, you will feel like a wanderer. You will never feel at home with life because you represent death. You will wander the world. He says, but I won't kill you. And Amelia said, why is that? Like, why doesn't, you know, why does he say, but I won't kill you? It's limited judgment. It's a consequence. It's justice. It's an act that, that demonstrates that God is not okay with murder. But he leaves the door open. The blindness is a grace. Cain, in your fugitive wandering, you can come back. I mean, the door is open in that story. Later in Acts 26, Paul recounts the story and he says it this way. He says that Jesus was saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what are goads? We don't know what those are. It's, it would have been of an idiom that was used in that time um, about a, a young ox that's being trained to plow a field. And what they would do is they would hit these sharp sort of paddles against their back legs to train them to go in a straight line, to train them to pull the plow. He says, why are you bucking up against the God of the universe? It's hard for you when you do that. Your life gets harder when you kick up against me. And gosh, that just rings true, doesn't it, with sin? Sin just makes things worse, doesn't it? You sin a little bit, and then a lot of times you get so enraged, like Saul does, that you just sin more. 
Because now you're embarrassed about your sin. Now you're ashamed of your sin. Now you feel worthless. And now you get angry. And you sin and you pile sin on sin and sin. That's how it works. And, and Jesus says, it's a losing battle. You're digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole. Let me help you. Let me help you by letting things fall apart. I want you, another way of saying this is, Saul, I want you whole. Until you're whole, there's no point in getting up again. Like, let's do this now. Like, let's mend this. Let's get you put together now and let's get you whole. There's a lot of similarities in this story between Saul and Jonah. Jonah also is in darkness for three days. Jonah also rebels against the true nature of God because what he thinks is true, right? Jonah thinks that Israel is the chosen nation and that Assyria and Nineveh are awful, horrible people and they don't deserve God's grace because they're wrong. And so he won't go and preach to them to repent. It's actually very similar to the story of Saul. And then Jonah, this huge storm rises up, right? To disrupt Jonah, to knock some sense into him, right? And what does Jonah doesn't take maybe quite as good of a course of action as Saul does. Jonah gets suicidal. If you read the story in Jonah 1, when the storm comes, he realizes that God's like gonna take him down now, like that God's gonna give some consequences to him. And he's so afraid, he just says, throw me off the boat. Like, I, that's like, I'm not going to Damascus, I'm just splitting, like I don't even wanna live anymore. If you've ever had depression or felt like you were in a state where you said, I just don't know, God, if I wanna wake up tomorrow. You can relate to Jonah. And you can see in the story of Saul that there's another way. But it requires heading straight in to pain. And believing that Jesus can heal you. So it's a grace that Jonah's exposed, right? It's a grace that Saul's exposed because it makes them utterly hopeless. Helpless, sorry. Makes them utterly helpless. And then both Saul and Jonah in the whale are in a season of fasting, right? Jonah's not eating anything down there. Not drinking anything except salt water. Saul deliberately fasts when the blindness hits, which would have been a thing for a Pharisee to do, right? Like, I'm going to fast and contend with God. I'm blind. Not only am I blind, but I'm wrong. God, like, I'm going to fast penitently. Spurgeon calls God sometimes the hound of heaven. He chases us down and he corners us. But this is what God is looking for. 
This is what he's looking for. He's looking for a prayer of repentance. And I think we all could use some studying of repentance. I think we could all use some study of what that biblically looks like. So I'm just going to read something here that you can follow along with if you have your Bibles. This is Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to read Jonah's prayer of repentance. I can't imagine Saul wouldn't have known this, right? In his three days in the belly. And I actually wouldn't be surprised at all if Saul prayed this, seeing how much him and Jonah had in common. Chapter two of Jonah, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Now just stop for a second. I want you guys to all just kind of be as quiet as we can. I know we've got kids running around. And just like sit here for a second and ask yourself, when I repent, do I go into a place of darkness, into a place of solitude? And do I cry out to the Lord out of my distress and wait for him to answer? Do I cry out to him when I am in the belly of Sheol, it says, which is basically the pit of hell, right? The pit of hell, the darkest of dark places of the soul. And does God hear my voice? Because this is what Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. That's grace. Because you got to remember, Saul is blinded by Jesus. Wait a second. Does Jesus condemn you? Like Saul knows what kind of guy Jesus was. He's blinded by Jesus. There's hope. There's tremendous hope. If Jesus is the triune God, then he knows that this is God full of loyal love and mercy and compassion. He knows the character. And so like Jonah, he says, from the pit of the grave, I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away by your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I am driven away from your sight. That's a realization of the reality of sin. You, you check it, you realize it, you say it's a real thing, I did that. But you say, I am not that. I did that, but I am not that. Because I'm calling out for you, God. I shall again look upon your holy temple. This is repentance. The waters crossed, closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and at the roots of the mountains. This means at the sea floor, right? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I feel like I'm in a never-ending prison. I mean, big feelers can identify with this stuff. Oh, Lord, my God, yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hopes in steadfast love. That's Jonah. That's Saul saying, whatever I was after doesn't matter. I see now. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. 
This is like the opposite of when your, you know, your plane's got turbulence. I don't know if you've ever done this. Your plane's like got really crazy turbulence and you're like, God, like just get me on the ground. I'll do whatever you want. You know? Or you had a near car accident, you know? Or just something terrible. You ever prayed one of those prayers? God, like, just save me from this and I'm yours. And then like a week later, you've totally forgotten. Right? Just completely forgot. It's like, but this is the opposite of that. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I will give of myself. I will actually put pain on myself in some cases as a choice to honor the vows. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up out upon the dry land. I'm sure Saul's in this space, in the blindness, in the room, in Damascus. In his Nineveh. I just don't want to die. I just don't want to be completely lost from your presence, God. What could be worse? In, in the Hebrew idiom, in the Old Testament, especially all throughout, John does this a lot in the New Testament. There's a huge dichotomy between darkness and light. There's a huge contrast between darkness and light. And darkness is the sea, it's chaos. And it's generally, we could equate it to not just chaos, but like confusion. The power of the confusing world. I mean, nature at that time was not an orderly, scientific, beautiful thing we watched on televisions. Nature was scary. Nature was like, I'm gonna die out here in the dark. And so it was a world of chaos, but it's also, I think, a picture of the human mind and our emotions apart from God. I wanna say that again. It's our human mind and emotions apart from God. When we get in that space of darkness without Jesus, we can't find our way out of the maze. But again, as my professor said on Friday and it spoke to me, he said, the gospel of Jesus shines brightness in the darkest places. That's what we're about. That's what we're a people of. So this is the revelation. And it's a personal revelation. Paul says, I made the choice and I did not consult with anyone. I didn't ask people's opinions. I didn't, get, I didn't look at the reviews of the church, of the Christians, of this religion. I didn't like, I just knew. I knew because I met Jesus personally. He even says later, he says, like, I'm like a late born child to this whole thing. I'm like last in line. I'm like the afterthought. In, in another way of putting this, this might speak to some of you, is I'm behind. Right? I'm 35, 40, 45, 55. I'm behind on doing what I need to do, and I feel kind of lame. I feel behind. I feel small. I feel like everybody else jumped on the bandwagon before I did. And Paul basically says, doesn't matter. The only path is forward anyways. Go forward. And this brings us to the close. And this is where I want to sit for a bit because this has been like a lot of rah, 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 right? Let's celebrate for a second. Let's celebrate repentance. Repentance is necessary for what? For the overwhelming light of Jesus to be restored to our eyes. That's what the story, the story of, of Saul's transformation is about. 
I'm just going to read 10 through 18 with this in mind. He's told, rise and enter the city, remember, and there you will be told what to do. It's out of your hands, Saul. I've got the wheel now. This is where we're going. Are you in? Saul says, all right, I'm in. I'm totally exhausted. I'm in. Just take me. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Gentiles and king, sorry, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on, laid his hands on him. He said, brother Saul, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul discovers the most important thing in his life in this moment. That Christianity is not a religion it's a relationship. Guys, if we want one line to witness, not just to ourselves first, but to our communities, that might be the line. I'm not inviting you to check out a religion. I'm sharing with you a relationship. This relationship has been so good for me. It brings me hope. It's gotten me through my darkest moments. So I'm not a Christian to be in the religion. I'm, in the Christ, I'm a Christian because I've met Jesus and I love him and he loves me. And without him, I couldn't possibly be where I'm at. I couldn't possibly find joy and happiness. I couldn't celebrate my life with all of the things I've done. When I lay there in bed at night and I remember my life, I could not possibly celebrate if it weren't for Jesus forgiving my sins. Think about this, like Ananias had his own journey that he had gone through. Like we don't think about this with the minor characters. How did Ananias get to where he could forgive Saul like that? Ananias has gone through his own journey. He's converted to the faith. He's met Jesus. He's been through all of this. And so he can come and when Saul opens his eyes and scales fall, and the first person he's looking at is the angelic face of Ananias. That's his second Damascus road moment. Now he's looking at the face of Jesus, saying to him, you are forgiven. You're my brother. You're my sister. It's gonna be okay. That is our role as a church. That's how we get to celebrate, is to just celebrate by giving out that kind of forgiveness. Because that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He is incarnated. He had a face. He could look on his disciples. He could look at the people next to him on the crosses. 
And just in that moment, that deepest moment where he's literally about to die for those sins, he could say, I will see you in heaven. And they know that they will because they're looking in his face. That's communion. That's what we do in the Christian community. And of course it has a cost. Of course Ananias is going, are you for real? This guy has been killing all of us. He's got warrants out for the rest of us. And you're telling me to go to his house and and make him not blind? So he can what, kill the rest of us? Like this seems like a really dumb idea. But Ananias has faith in the way of Jesus and he has faith in the power of forgiveness and how it will change people when they are forgiven. Because let's, let's just admit it, Saul has a very redeemable trait, doesn't he? You might think, oh, there's nothing good about this guy. No, Saul has an incredible trait. I envy it. When Saul is in, man, Saul's in. Like Saul was a diehard. Jesus talks about having the gentleness of doves and the wisdom of serpents, the cunning of serpents, right? What he's talking about there as a Christian, the serpent, Josh White was talking about this at Dora Hope down the street. I was listening to the sermon, he goes, the serpent is like Satan, right? Why would Jesus say you're going to have the, the, the wisdom of the serpent? Why is he saying that? Like, why is that a trait that Christians will have? This is what he's getting at. What was Satan really good at? Not giving up. Satan never gives up, right? And so that personality trait in Saul, that thing, Jesus says, I'm going to meet you, flip you around, and keep you going in the same direction because that, I want that. I want that on my team. So there's something in all of your personalities that the redeemed side of it is crucial to God's kingdom. It's crucial and he wants it and he's chosen you to be on the team. And I just want you to realize like the dignity that that can bring. Because I think sometimes we feel like we lose our lives into the faith. That it takes too much from us. That it's too much work. And maybe the, the, the applicational prayer we should pray and then I'm just going to close in prayer here is something that I just took to heart this week and said, maybe this will be my fasting prayer, is to go through Jonah 2 and just actually put myself into it, right? And admit where I'm wrong and seek the necessity that I must have Jesus in my life. I can't do today without him, not because like he's gonna fix all of the problems, but because I've already made too many problems in the past to even live today without him. He removes my shame. He removes my guilt. And now out of that, pray the prayer, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? Because this is what Saul later says he said to Jesus. It's funny how all these different accounts are here and in different accounts there's certain words added as he recalls it. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. And then he says, what shall I do? Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Go forward, the next step, do the next thing. Now, Lord, what shall I do? What shall I do? What is like Jesus to do today? 
Let's pray. God, thank you for your your grace in all of us. And I know that um, you've blessed us with families. And I pray that we give a lot of grace right now and just enjoy the fact that the kids are here with us, that they would be getting something out of this too, God, that you'd be speaking to all of them. We have great kids in this church. God, I pray that... um, in some way our faith would be more real today and maybe our pain would have more purpose today and maybe we would have more conviction to seek hope and to celebrate you today. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.